But tonight we're in uh, the, the fourth little message here in our uh, People Reaching People series. And tonight we want to talk about the message of a God, God-centered gospel. A God-centered gospel, how important that is. Um, the gospel itself is the good news that our God has acted to, uh, on our behalf to restore sinners to himself by providing the forgiveness of our sins and salvation from the eternal punishment through the atoning work of, of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is always a message that confronts people because it confronts people about their sin. So it's not always easy to share. Um, it's not always comfortable to share, I should say, but it's always important. And it calls, uh, as we looked at last week, sinners to repentance. Repentance is a big part of the gospel. You can tell them everything about Jesus and everything about God and everything, but if you don't tell them the need to repent, um, it, it, it calls unbelievers to turn from their own efforts, their own... Uh, doing for salvation and submit to Christ's lordship. That's what basically what repentance ha- is. And uh, that's never been a popular message for people to hear. And if you've had any opportunity to share the gospel with people, you know what I'm talking about. People don't say, oh, thank you for calling me a sinner. No, they're, they're usually offended. They, they don't want to hear it. Okay. And Paul, Peter, James, Stephen, many others in the the New Testament, to tell you how confrontational the gospel is, were actually martyred. They had to give up their life for preaching the gospel. Uh, We have it easy today in our country so far. But still, there is, the Bible says there is salvation in no one else. So we continue, even though it's unpopular, to proclaim the gospel message. And, And the gospel focuses on the work and the person of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the main frame of the gospel. And it reveals that exclusive means of, of God reconciling us back to him through Christ's uh, atoning work on the cross. And it accomplishes the forgiveness of our sins. And it offers us, offers us eternal hope of heaven. If you look over in Acts, we're going to be jumping around a little bit tonight, so you can get your Bibles out, but Acts chapter 20, and I just want to read a couple verses here for us out of Acts chapter 20. Look at verse um, 17, Acts 20, verse 17. And here he's speaking to the Ephesian elders. He says, now from Miletus, He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, here's what he said to them. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And what was he teaching? He was testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He was sharing the gospel. He was preaching the gospel. Over in the book of Romans, chapter 10, it tells us very clearly that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, in verse 9 and 10, the Bible says, without any um, question, you will be saved. It says, for the heart, with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So it's a um, kind of a, a dual action that happens. God transforms us, our hearts. He calls us to be his children. And so when someone is willing to confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's not just saying that he is Lord, because we know in Matthew 7, there's going to be people who say, Lord, Lord, haven't we? And he's going to say, no, sorry, I don't know you, right? But it has the idea that you're not just saying it, but you're actually living by that. And you believe in your heart, that's why it includes that, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so, really, for someone to, when we, when we tell someone the gospel, we want to include in that proclamation a call for them to what? Not just believe the gospel, to repent, but what else? To obey. Obey the gospel. If, if you can't obey the gospel, you're not a believer. If you're not obeying the gospel, you're not saved. We're called to obey the gospel as well. And we have to include the aspect of, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that for by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing, it's not of your own works. He clearly says there it's a gift of God. So we want people to know right out of the gate that, look, this isn't something you can work for. This isn't something that um, you can kind of earn uh, so that you can boast about it. And so the, the, the blessings result from the Holy Spirit's work in bringing these, these people to repentance. It's God's work in their heart. We're just bringing the stuff to the table. We're just the waiter bringing the food to the table. And uh, what's unfortunate is today people have looked at Paul's and Peter's gospel and said, ah, that doesn't, you know, that's kind of old-fashioned. We've got to change it up a little bit, right? And they did the same thing back in Paul's day. Uh, in Galatians chapter 1. Turn over to Galatians chapter 1. Because he points out here how uh, astonished he is uh, that what they, what they did. He says there in verse, um, verse 6, of Galatians chapter 1. Look at what he says. He says, I'm astonished. I am blown away. I am surprised. I'm flabbergasted, you could say, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to what? What's it say? A different gospel. Okay? So the idea that there's just one gospel, there's only one true gospel. But unfortunately, the world has taken the gospel and it's changed it up. It's... it's added it's taken away things and that's what paul says here not that there is another one because we know there's only one but there are some who trouble you and want to what distort the true gospel of christ they take it and they mean they they make it mean something that was never intended you know um, some of the the distortions of the gospel today that we hear would be what what are some of the distortions let's hear them i We'll, I'll edit the tape. What are some of the distortions we hear in the modern day gospel today that are not biblical? Everybody's saved. Okay, everybody's saved. You can be a Hindu and still go to heaven. Okay, you can be a Hindu and still go to heaven. Did you say? Okay, God is only love. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of of distortions in the gospel this one you hear a lot well you know you just you just need to believe and um you know you will be saved just say this prayer you know that's a cheap gospel that's not what the bible says um or 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 sometimes you'll you'll hear people uh, say things like well you know you, you just just come to jesus as your savior you know, I know you're not doing everything right. That's okay. He understands. He's a loving God. He'll, don't worry about it. But you just need to trust him as your Savior. Don't worry about the Lord part yet. And, and that's, that's another kind of a unfortunate distortion of the gospel. What Paul says here in verse 8, he says, they want to distort the gospel of Christ because they know that's the only true gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven, he says. So he includes his apostolic authority here. And he says, even if an apostle or some angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to, that runs in the face of, to the one that we originally preached to you, what does he say? Let him be accursed. Okay, that's not a light term. That's kind of, the you know, let him be damned. It's a very serious accusation. And he even repeats it. He says in verse 9, As we have said before, 
So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You know, why would you change the gospel that changed you? Why would you take a message that saved you because you understood the power of the gospel and you came to Christ through someone preaching the gospel to you in some form or fashion? You know, maybe it was through the word, maybe it's through a testimony, whatever. But somehow the gospel was communicated to you and you responded in, in affirmative belief and obedience to the gospel and God saved you. He transferred you from darkness to light. Why would you want to change that message? It doesn't make any sense. See, I would say the people that want to change the message are the people that never understood the message from the beginning. They're the ones that are going to be standing before Jesus one day saying, Lord, Lord, wait a minute. Haven't I done this? Haven't I done that? And he says, that's, that's not a good, good place to be. And in verse 10, this kind of gives us the motivation for people wanting to distort or change the, the gospel. For, I am, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Uh, we have too many servants of men in our churches today. They're too worried about what people would think of them if they actually preached the gospel that saved them. They're too afraid of offending anybody. You know, a lot of times it's, it's difficult. I get it. It's hard for me every time I stand in front of a group of people that I don't know <clears throat> at a funeral or where, wherever, and I have to bring the gospel. And sometimes, you know, it's a little awkward because they think you're just going to get up and share a bunch of flowery things that's going to make them feel better. But the fact of the matter is, I want them to understand that without the gospel, without Christ's death on the cross, they're lost in their sin. And, you know, there's, there's very little, there's nothing we can do for the person that's dead at a funeral. But, you know, our audience is our target. Our audience is the ones that we want to understand the gospel. And so it is difficult to, when people are looking for comfort to bring a message that sometimes doesn't comfort them. I mean, there's ways that you can kind of do it, but still, it's, it's very important to at least include that. And... Um, and so this deceptive message that they came up with here, that they distorted, they took the real message of the gospel and they distorted it, you know, what it basically does is it strives to meet the felt needs of people. It, it, it says, what do people want to hear? That's what we want to give them. And, you know, we, we want them to love God. We want them to come to church. We want them to do all this stuff. So, you know what, let's, let's dumb down the gospel to something that will be appealing to them and, and meet their felt needs. And we, they basically exchange that for a very minimal commitment. A very minimal commitment. And uh, that's a false gospel message. And it's, it's subtly changed the contents. It subtly, subtly changes the requirements to make them more um, palatable, to make them more appealing to unbelievers. And, and basically, it's a very man-centered gospel. It's a very man-centered message. Now, it may contain some biblical truth. You know, you may be saying, hey, you know, you need to believe in Jesus. You may be saying some biblical truth, but those biblical truths are distorted. And the error comes when biblical truths are given out of, taken out of context. God loves everyone. Um, everyone, he's going to be saved, or things like that. I mean, you know, um, we have to be careful with that. In 2 Timothy, if you look at this verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he tells us very clearly, Paul does once again, writing to Timothy, a young pastor, he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will not endure it. They won't be running to your church if you're teaching sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's what we see going on today in the modern day church for the most part. 
And it says, and we'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. All you have to do is go on the internet and start looking up some churches and what they're teaching on. It's incredible. I mean, some of the things they, they come up with, is, it's very creative. But it's it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, see, the true gospel, the gospel that, that Christ wants us to preach, the gospel that actually saved our, our souls, is a distinct gospel. It stands apart from everything else. And so I want to just look at uh, a couple of the distinctions of a God-centered message, a God-centered gospel. And the first point there is the God-centered message or gospel proclaims God's holiness. You know, God is not just a man upstairs. He's waiting to give you a big hug, you know, grandpa, that kind of thing. No, he's a holy God. And, and what's, you know, popular today is to bring God down to the human level and, and to re- redefine God as somebody who's tolerant. And he's kind of this passive figure in history who, who's going to always withhold his judgment because, after all, God is love. And as long as your intentions are honorable, he'll give you a big, you know, pass on your, on your report card. That's the opposite, total, complete opposite of the biblical description of God's holiness. Our God is set apart. He's holy. And, and I, put, I think I put the verses down there for you. Um, uh, uh, some of them, anyway. First uh, Peter um, uh, one sixteen. it says, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Okay. Um, Psalm 50, verse 4 tells us very clearly, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. God is a God of judgment. That, that will happen. And I think that it's important for us to realize that, that this is not just, you know, a gray-haired grandpa who gives everybody a pass in the end just because he's a nice guy. Um, he is a holy God. He's set apart from everything. Um, 1 Samuel 2.2 2 says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our rock. And we need to understand that. And so because he's holy, the Bible says he has to, he has to punish sin. These are, this is all information that we have to have in the gospel when we're sharing it with people. We can't just gloss over this. So that God is holy, and because he's holy, he has to punish sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Uh, Terry was just talking about that earlier to me. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, death is twofold. It's not only physical death, but it's such a thing as spiritual death, right? I mean, um, you know, and, and spiritual death doesn't mean that you're completely isolated from God. A lot of people believe that. They believe that, well, spiritual death is just the absence of God for all eternity. And that could be nothing further from the truth. The Bible says that in hell you will be in the presence of God. The only problem is is his presence will be enveloped in his wrath for all eternity. Uh, And and we need to realize that. Because if you don't include that, then people think, hey, I want to go to hell because, (laughs) you know, just a big party. With my buddies, it's like, hey, God's not there. There's no morality. Do whatever you want. No, that's not. I heard a, I think it was a today, an illustration um, this morning. I can't remember when I was half asleep. I was listening to KPAX. And uh, I heard this illustration that there was this, this guy who was just a complete atheistic, didn't believe in God, didn't believe in anything. He died. And when he woke up in eternity, he looked around and all these people were wearing white and they're walking around and they're reciting psalms and they're doing all this spiritual stuff. And he's like, wait a minute, you know, is there a bar here? You know, where are my buddies? You know, I need to go party and everything. Oh, there's none of that here, none of that here. And the, the, one of the, the people who were walking around finally said, no, you know, you're, this is heaven to us, but it's hell to you. <laughs> you know, and you think about that, that's true. You know, uh, hell is not going to be a big, a big party. 
I think hell is going to be a place where people completely understand the love of God, the love of Christ, His sacrifice on the cross for them, but they're going to have to live for all eternity knowing that they rejected it. They rejected a free gift that would have wiped all that out. But they're going to know for all eternity that His love and His sacrifice was sincere but they won't reap the consequences of it because they rejected it. And yet, his love, on the other hand, he's a, he's a holy God, but he has to punish sin because he's holy. And yet, his love, he doesn't just punish everybody, he doesn't just send everybody to hell, because the Bible also tells us that his love provides the only means of salvation and forgiveness of sin. And we know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. What did he do? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Um, 1 John 4.16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. They take that out of context. <laughs> and they quote that little part of it. God is love. And whoever, <clears throat> it says, abides in love, abides in God, and abides, and God abides in him. Well, abiding means t setting up house. So you have, you have literally come under the, the lordship of Christ, and, and he is abiding with you, and, and you are abiding with him. And so a God-centered message proclaims God holiness. Secondly, a God-centered message reveals, <clears throat> it reveals man's sinful condition. Uh, you know, a man-centered gospel, uh, that message kind of treats sin as what? A mistake, right? Or a weakness, or, you know, a tendency, or, or maybe something else. Um, it's a, it's a, a lateral offense done against another human being. That's how we treat um, those kind of things here on earth. It fails to explain sin is an offense to a holy God. You can't leave that out. Because that's what really creates the need for his forgiveness. If you think, you know, just sin is just what you do, you know, to other people, there's a lot of people who live pretty good lives. Morally, helping other human beings, other human beings and charities and all kinds of things. But they fail to understand that their sin is an offense against not just other human beings, but it's against who? It's against God. Uh, Psalm 51.4 says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Um, when judgment falls from the hand of God, no one's going to stand before a holy God and say, Hey, wait a minute, this isn't fair. They're going to completely understand that no a holy god is 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 you know doing the right thing in that situation even though it may send them to hell uh, but they're going to completely understand there's not going to be anybody who raises a hand and is able to stand before a holy god saying wait a minute wait a minute no you got this wrong no and that's what this psalm 51 4 says against you you only have i sinned and done what is evil in your sight you know, it's not just a mistake. You know, when we sin, it grieves the heart of God. Why? Because it's a sin against him. And it's, it's against everything that he stands for. Um, often it leads one to assume that, that, that man, though guilty of sin, somehow has some basically uh, good intent. You know, if, if you don't believe that you when you sin, you sin against God. It's kind of like a lot of times, unless you name it and, and really own it, you think, well, you know what? I mean, God knew my heart, and, you know, we kind of dumb it down. And Isaiah 64, 6 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean. Notice, it's without equivocation here, all of us. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon the name who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand 
of our iniquities. That's how serious our condition is before a holy God. Uh, we, we are completely undone. That's why Jeremiah 17.9 can say the heart is what? Deceitful above all things. Why is it deceitful? Because it's, it's desperately wicked. It's desperately sick. You can't even understand it. Um, you know, I was thinking that this week, you know, I mean, you know, the big thing, the, the, who was it, Will Smith got up and slapped the, the comedian, right? And I'm thinking, well, was this an act? Some people say it was. Probably wasn't. Just because of the rage afterwards. <laughs> but eventually, I mean, I think he sincerely, probably, felt sick over what he did. I mean, you'd have to be non-human not to be embarrassed over something like that. You know, not that that makes it right, wrong, whatever. I'm just saying, you know, but in the moment, his deceitful, desperately sick heart uh, didn't understand the consequences of what he was going to do. He just went by his emotions. And, um, but that's, that's where that leads. You know, that's where that leads. Uh, Romans 3.10 None is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. It always cracks me up because we have the seeker movement, you know, and it's like, well, wait a minute. I mean, who are these people? Because the Bible says no one seeks for God. Um, all have turned aside, unless God is drawing them, obviously. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes everybody. Everyone is a, a sinner. In rebellion against God. There's nothing wrong with, with sharing that with people. Helping them come to the conclusion that yes, they are a sinner. There's a lot of ways you can do that. The, probably one of the, the easiest way is, is just tell them you want to give them a test. You know, you think you're, ask people, or do you think you're a good person? Most people who are not a Christian would say yes. I think I'm a pretty good person. And then you go through. You know, if we've gone through before, you know, you go through some of the commandments. Have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah, who hasn't? Well, it's irrelevant. What does that make you? You know, and, and some people, you can tell how prideful they are because it's like they can't say it. You know, they won't say, well, yeah, I'm a liar. Now, some people, they don't care. Yeah, I'm a liar. Um, or have you stolen anything? Or have you ever thought an a evil thought or a lustful thought? I mean, you can go right down there, and by the end of the conversation, they're, they're looking at their answers, and, you know, it's out of their own mouth. And you say, basically, based on the answers that you just gave me, and according to God's holiness and God's law, based on this little test, you still think you're a good person. It takes a very hard-hearted person to say, oh, yes. You know, uh, most people will say, well, no, I guess I got some problems. You know, they'll, they'll be given to that because it's, it's God's word during that work of conviction in their heart. Because everyone is a sinner. Everyone is in rebellion against God. We don't have to work hard at, at convincing people about that. Uh, no matter how moral, no matter how kind, no matter how loving one may appear to be, the thing that we have to understand is unbelievers are hopelessly lost in their sin. They don't even know they're lost in their sin. And so we don't have to apologize when we approach them and point these things out. We're not trying to publicly shame them. You do it tactfully, and you do it in, in a way that points them to Christ. But uh, you know, don't, don't feel we have to uh, shy away from that message. Because all we do, basically, is tainted with sin. We can't save ourselves from the eternal consequences of sin any more than a, a criminal can determine their own penalty. I mean, he hasn't gotten that bad yet. I mean, pretty soon it may. I mean, you never know. You know, okay, so you, you killed somebody. What do you think we should give you? You know, and let the criminal decide. Maybe it's going to get to that point. It hasn't gotten there yet. The law still hands down some kind of verdict. We may not even agree with it. But they don't just let the criminal come up with their own verdict. And then thirdly here, the God-centered message declares Christ as... Uh, Savior. Declares Christ as Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord. As Savior Christ, what did he do? He lived a sinless life while he was here. And this, these are part that we explain uh, when we were giving the presentation of the gospel. Uh, he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. Uh, he conquered sin and death 
by coming out of the grave by his resurrection. This is a wonderful time to share that message with people. You know, uh, you can start a conversation with somebody. Hey, do you do anything? Do you do, do anything for Easter? And ask them and see where they're at religiously. You know, if they're Catholic, oh, we have Good Friday, we do this, we do that. And just ask them. Start asking them questions about their faith. And if they don't, um, say, well, do you know what Easter's about? You know, and you can begin to tell them. Uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We just read that verse. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 4 says, we have to believe that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures attest to this. This is one thing we're going we're gonna to be starting a series on Sunday uh, entitled, For Us. For Us. And it's going to be looking at what Christ did for us up until the resurrection. We'll be doing that for a couple weeks. But it's important that we understand that he was crucified, that he lived a perfect life, that he, he went to the cross, he was crucified, that he was buried. And on the third day, he rose victorious over sin and death. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's an incredible verse. And if you, you think about that, the idea that the, the perfect spotless Lamb of God was made to take on all the sins of those who would ever believe in his name and to pay them in full and bear the consequences of God's judgment as God. <laughs> that's, that's kind of a crazy thought, but that's, that's what that means. And that's what he is. He's our Savior. He's our Savior from God's judgment. But he's also a Lord, it says. And as Lord, he's the ruler over every aspect of life and every dynamic of creation. You can't separate his lordship from his being a savior. You can't, it's just, they're all in one. He is Lord and savior. But a man-centered gospel, a gospel that is just not God-centered, but man-centered, it really fails to connect Christ's authority to every aspect of life. Because the whole purpose is to make people feel better and, oh, their sins are forgiven, so you, know, you don't have to really do anything about this. You just, just, just trust Jesus as your Savior and you'll be good. That's all it takes. But that's not all it takes. Because if you're just you know, turning from your sin to Jesus for salvation, but you're not really acknowledging that He is Lord over your life, you're not really being obedient to the call of the gospel. Um, some people think they can accept Christ as Savior, securing their salvation, and then later, somehow down the road, when they mature in the relationship, that's when they make him Lord. And we don't make Jesus anything, right? I mean, Jesus is Savior. He is Lord. Uh, and we're called to obey and submit to his commands. And, and a lot of times people that, that believe that kind of a gospel simply want to add Jesus as a kind of a, a trinket to their life. You know, I'll go to church on Sunday and bring Jesus on, you know, on board my life, but everything else is going to stay the same. Uh, I'm going to do everything else, else the same. I heard a, a, a rapper one time who came to Christ and he said, basically, in his comments after his, quote, conversion. Don't worry, my act's going to stay the same. <laughs> well, his act was filthy. F-bombs all over the place. And I thought, wow, what kind of conversion is that? You know, uh, he had the wrong uh, gospel. And so we, we have to be reminded of that. You can't just add Jesus to everything else you're doing. It's a complete death to yourself and then turning to Christ. And when you share that with people, that's... You know, you're saying, well, you're kind of limiting the people that are going to respond to that. Well, yes, you are. But you're, you're limiting it to the people that God is doing a work in their heart. I mean, I don't ever want to lead someone to Christ who, who doesn't understand the gospel. I don't want to bring someone along and, you know, pat them on the head and say, well, welcome to the family. If I'm not sure that they understand that, that they're called to turn from themselves and uh, turn to Christ with everything they have. 
And then fourthly here, the God-centered message calls sinners to repent and to believe in Christ. And we talked about this last week. So we, there's two kinds of repentance, basically, in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 11, this points it out. It says, for godly grief, that's one, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, that's another kind, produces death. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, Paul is saying, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And so he points out there at the very beginning, there is a godly grief, there is a godly repentance that produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Those are the the, the kind of conversions we want. That's what we want to see in people's life. We want to see that, that, that grief over their sin. But see, if we just tap them on their head and say, well, God loves you in spite of who you are and don't worry about the sin issues, they're not going to have a proper understanding of who God thinks they are. And so we have to include the aspect of their sinfulness, and that leads to a godly grief when they realize when God shows them um, the weight of their sin and shows them that, wow, I'm not just disappointing my mom and dad. I'm not just disappointing my, my church or the people that in my neighborhood. I'm, I'm disappointing God. Uh, that, that drives people to their, to their knees. But it says there's also a worldly grief that produces death. A good example of, of somebody in the New Testament who practiced what I would say is a, a worldly grief would be who? Judas Iscariot, right? I mean, he, he, he kind of understood what he did was wrong. I mean, he hung himself over it, right? I mean, he was so disgusted with his own behavior. So he, he kind of got it, but he didn't get it, um, unfortunately. Um, it wasn't, it was, we're going to be looking at him on, on uh, Sunday, actually. So that's what I'm going to say about that. But there's, there's a, a, a worldly sorrow that is motivated purely by... Uh, being concerned with feelings and the embarrassment over being caught or maybe thoughts of regret of doing something wrong, consequences of one's actions or whatever. And, but it says that this kind of repentance only leads to death. It doesn't result in the forgiveness of sin. It doesn't result in reconciliation with God. It doesn't result in eternal life. It's only the second kind, a godly sorrow. Um, this is the, a repentance, is the expression of belief in the gospel message and like i said it's something you don't have to guess about in somebody's life if somebody's truly repentant if somebody's truly saved we don't have to walk away scratching our head going boy i wonder if they're saved or not i don't know you know um i've talked to people who said they were saved that you know didn't necessarily believe that jesus was the son of god and i had to tell them i'm sorry you're not saved you know or they they question the trinity or they question the other pretty much foundational you know, uh, theological beliefs that, you, that are needed. Or they question the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, I, I still think I'm saved. No, you're not saved. If you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not saved. I'm sorry. I don't know what kind of Jesus you're believing in, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. So there's that foundation of saving faith, and it marks that change from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And it restores that ruined relationship between the sinner and God. And what a glorious thing it is. I mean, remember when you were first saved and you finally understood that, wow, God has forgiven me. That now I can, I can have a relationship with my, my God and my Creator. Um, that's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18. He talks about that. He says, Christ also died for sins once for all. And then he tells us what that is. The just for the unjust. Him being the just, us being the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. That was the role of Christ in salvation. He paid for our sins that he might bring us to God. Uh, genuine repentance, genuine salvation is motivated by a solemn, by an urgent turning from sin. And is a response of, of submission to God. And that results in their forgiving of sin, reconciling to God, eternal life, all those things. And, and once the Holy Spirit has enabled an unbeliever to understand 
their desperate need for salvation through Christ, that believer has to respond in genuine repentance. You don't make them do it. They don't even know how to do it. It's something God grants them, the Bible says. It's a turning from sin and submitting to Christ. And then the last thing here, a a God-centered message proclaims God himself as the great end of the gospel. And this is very important today for us to understand this. And what I mean by this is there's a lot of Bible-believing, I would even say theologically sound, um, conservative Christians who basically conclude the presentation of the gospel at this point. They say, okay, well, you know, they know that they're a sinner and that God is, Jesus is their Savior, and and that's it. Um, And they explained how humanity can escape God's judgment in having their sins forgiven in Christ, and they even include the essential nature of repentance. And they believe, well, if they've done that, then the conversation's over. There's nothing else that we can do. And, and what that does, I think, for a lot of people, maybe unintentionally, it leaves them with the impression that the ultimate goal of the gospel is what? Our salvation. That's where it leaves us. And you say, well, isn't that right? No, that's not right. That's not the goal of the gospel. The ultimate goal of the gospel is not man. It's not even his deliverance from the penalty of sin. That's not the ultimate goal of the gospel. The Bible reveals that there's much more (laughs) to this in God and much more as far as joy for us as redeemed sinners. The Bible tells us that God's chief end in salvation is his own glory. It's not our salvation. Jesus died on the cross. Yes, part of that process was for the forgiveness of our sins. That's a benefit of that. But why did he do it? He he did it to glorify his Father. Isaiah 43, 25. He says this, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. Does it say for your sake? No, it says for my own sake. God speaking. Why does God save us for his own sake? Or 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. John writes and he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you. What's it say? For his name's sake. It's not for us. It's for his name's sake. Or in Ephesians. We've read through this passage a lot in the last couple of weeks, but Ephesians chapter 1. I'll just kind of briefly call out some of the phrases here beginning in verse 3 he chose us in him and then it says to the praise of the glory of his grace yeah we benefit from it but it's primarily not for us he continues he says in him also we have obtained an inheritance to the end that we who were the first to hope in christ would be to the praise of his glory you getting the message You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise to the praise of his glory. This is not about us. Yes, we are are saved by God's grace and all that is true. And thank God for that. But God did it for his own glory. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. But God made us alive together in Christ so that in the ages to come, listen, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, as faithful proclaimers of the gospel, we don't want to fail to present God himself as uppermost in his own affections. And I think a potential danger of of speaking about a love so unspeakable and so unspeakably precious, really, is God's love for mankind is presenting it for its own sake as an end in and of itself. It's not like, oh, God just loves me so much. It's all about me. No, it's not. Because God is not a man-centered God. God is God-centered. It's for his ultimate glory. And the great motivating force behind God's love for sinners demonstrated in the gospel is his delight, 
his delight in displaying his own glory. Now, in our own fallen mindset, we look at that and go, man, what an ego trip God has. It's okay, because he's holy. So it's not evil in any way. He means to receive the worship he is worthy of from sinners like you and me. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says, He must purify for himself a people for his own possession. He saves us for his sake by paying for their sins and providing them with perfect righteousness. See, that's a, a God-centeredness. And that has to shape our understanding of the gospel and our, our understanding of evangelism. Because it helps you with questions when people say, well, if God chose us before the foundation of the world, I mean, thankful for that because I'm saved. But what about the people who weren't chosen? How do you answer that question? What do you say? Tough beans? I mean, what? You know, no, the answer is, I don't understand it. I just know God is working everything out according to his, his plan, his glory. It's for his glory. Even the vessels that are ready for destruction are for his glory. That's a hard thing to understand. But we have to have that in our theology because that's what the Bible teaches. So God's chief end in salvation is his own glory. And then secondly, the sinner's greatest benefit in salvation is not our salvation. is God himself. That's what we receive. God's own God-centeredness becomes the foundation for what? For our God-centeredness. That's why it's wrong for us to be centered on man. I mean, the greatest news of the gospel is that sinners may finally be reconciled to their God and their Creator and enjoy His glory. Not our own glory. His glory. I mean, Scripture defines spiritual death as blindness to the glory of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So spiritual death is a blindness to the glory of Christ. And it, it defines regeneration, on the other hand, as God shining light into our hearts so that we might finally see the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians down two verses, verses uh, chapter 4, verse 6, he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. Why? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I mean, what a, what a wonderful thing it is to have a proper understanding of what the gospel is so that we can properly share it with those who have yet to hear. Just a couple closing verses. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Or John 17.3 This is eternal life, that they may know him. They may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Um, that's eternal life. If people ever ask you, take them to that verse. Highlight that verse in your Bible. Um, or 2 Thessalonians 2.14. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, John Piper wrote this. He says, even though the gospel purchased, <clears throat> even though the gospel purchased and promises many good gifts, from the most spiritual to the most material. Yet God himself is the ultimate good promised in the gospel. If we do not see and savor that greatest good above all others and in all others, we do not yet know why the good news is truly good. That's very true. So we, when we proclaim the gospel to unbelievers, we have to be careful present God himself and enjoy the beauty of his glory as long as 
the greatest blessing of, of, of being saved. I mean, what a, you know, we have to let people understand that the greatest news of the gospel is not merely that we are saved from the torments of hell. Neither is it that one day we'll be reunited with the loved ones that have gone on before us. It's not even the, the one day we will be free from suffering. All those things are benefits. Don't get me wrong. They're glorious benefits. They're all gloriously true, but they are not ultimate. The greatest benefit of the gospel is that we may once again enjoy what was lost by our fall and our failure into sin. That unhindered fellowship with our God and Creator that we were created to know and to worship for all eternity. That's the gospel. That's the, the God-centered gospel. And that's what we need to be sharing, not some man-centered gospel that, that kind of puts a band-aid on people's felt needs and sends them on their way to hell. Well, let's close in a word of prayer, and then we can have a little discussion. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, that the, the true message of the gospel is a, is a God-centered message. It's not about us. I mean, we're beneficiaries. When we believe and obey the gospel, we're saved from our sin. And we know that as sinners, we're, we're called under your judgment. And outside of Christ... We will be punished for that sin for all eternity. And so we turn to the Savior. We choose not to trust in our own doing, but we trust in your gracious gift of salvation through Christ. And so as we do that, Lord, it, it, your word tells us that we will be saved. And we'll be saved for all eternity. But Lord, you still left us here on this earth to share the gospel message. And I pray that we would do our due diligence to present it accurately, and boldly, and without apology not because the powers in our presentation or our ability to share the gospel, but Lord, it's in your word. It's in the power of the gospel itself. That's what saves people when you draw their hearts and you initiate that, that transformation of their lives. And Lord, we just pray that you would line us up with as many people that you've chosen before the foundation of the world as we're faithful to present the gospel to them, that they will respond and they will be obedient to the gospel. We pray for those even in our own church who have yet to really understand and to trust in you. And we pray that you would save them, that you would take the blinders off their eyes and to show them their need of a Savior, for a Savior, and for the forgiveness of their sin. We thank you. And just pray tonight, Lord, um, for our own country. Lord, it's, it's just uh, it's heart-wrenching to watch, but Father, we know that you have a purpose and you have a plan and, and all these things are playing out according to your your plan and lord as hard as it is we we trust in your your steady hand and father we we pray that people would turn to you during this time that you would create a hunger in the hearts and souls of people we thank you for the visitors we've been having on sundays and lord we pray that you would allow the message of the gospel to be communicated clearly to them that they could respond and obey and turn to you for the salvation of their souls. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.